Ohio Police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. My guest today a most reasonable voice, John Funderburk. John Funderburk is the senior field director for the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, that's AIM, and its Connected Political Action Committee, AIMPAC, AMPAC, and as the senior director of advocacy for the Alzheimer's Association, John oversees the association's nationwide grassroots and Grass Tops. Can't wait to hear what Grass Tops are. Grass Tops federal and state advocacy programs, and he manages its national issue advocacy campaigns. Prior to working at the Alzheimer's Association, John Funderburk oversaw the political and grassroots outreach strategy for the American Medical Association, AMA. So, without further ado, good afternoon, John. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure. I've met John at a meeting uh, where he chaired and and gave some terrific feedback, uh, uh, policy statements, answers to questions in a room full of people who are actively involved in caregiving for people who are living with Alzheimer's. And I said, I got to have him on the show. So here he is. So, John, let's um, let's jump right in the uh, AIM, I got to say, there's so much I'm still learning about uh, uh, Alzheimer's and and, uh, how it's the the research and everything. I didn't know about AIM, A-I-M, the Alzheimer's Impact Movement. So tell us about that. What does it do? So the the AIM, or the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, is the advocacy arm of the Alzheimer's Association. And we are nationwide. Uh, we work with uh, uh, advocates in all 50 states. Um, we work to train them. Uh, we want to make sure that their voices are part of our dialogue when we are working on public policy. The voice of the advocate is critical. Uh, and AIM and the association works to uh, ensure that those voices are engaging elected officials across the country. And those are uh, members of Congress. 
uh, leaders at the state level, and, and even in some cases at the local level. And the Alzheimer's Impact Movement has been a, a, a critical voice for families living with Alzheimer's disease, um, essentially to have, make sure that they have a seat at the table. Um, we do have a connected political action committee, which is involved in uh, campaigns uh, as allowed. Um, but really making sure that Alzheimer's, because it is not a partisan issue, but understanding that it, it deserves a bipartisan approach and that it's going to take bipartisan solutions from our elected leaders uh, to deal with the Alzheimer's crisis. You know, I'm so glad, and I'm, I'm glad I confessed that I didn't know this, because uh, as some of my listeners probably know, both my parents uh, suffered with Alzheimer's, and I, I learned how to, to be a caregiver uh, in charge of so many different areas as I went along. It was, I, 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 wasn't, uh, I wasn't trained like the training that I know that you provide. The, and so the more I hear, the thing that hits me the most is that you provide training on how we can speak to lawmakers and elected officials and policymakers. How do you, how do, you do that? I, I'm... I can't believe I'm so much in, in political media, and I had parents who had Alzheimer's, and you and I are just now talking. So tell me. <laughs> sure. Well, the, the story that each advocate possesses is their most powerful tool. Mm. And so that's what we really focus on, is how to, have, how to train individuals to share their own story. And as you know, Marcello, that's not always easy yes. because there's so many different facets to this disease and so many different faces to the disease. And of course, you're also looking at, on the other side, the lawmakers who hear stories from advocates from all different uh, issues uh, all day, every day. And so what we really try and focus on is uh, advocates to share a story that's going to be impactful, that really is going to leave that lawmaker with the sense that, that he must do something. So we focus on the facts and figures. We focus on stats, both nationally and locally in states. But really tying that together is the voice of the advocate. So it, may be, it might be what the caregiver has gone through, what mm. the caregiver currently goes through on a daily basis, yeah. how that, how policy could impact that, could change their, their own situation. It might be uh, an individual living with the disease, and that, in that case, they might talk about their diagnosis and all that went through to get that diagnosis, and honestly, how they deal on a day-to-day basis living with Alzheimer's disease. And ultimately, when, when lawmakers go, whether it's at the State House or, or in Washington at the Capitol, when they go to, to vote on an issue, they're rarely thinking about a fact mm. or a stat. They're thinking about a person. Yes. They're thinking about someone who has made a, an impact on them and how this vote's going to change their lives. And so that's knowing that that is an incredibly powerful tool. That's what we really focus on. We also focus on a, a wide variety of tactics, mm-hmm. um, using uh, media like yourself and working with media like yourself, uh, using social media, Facebook, Twitter, and, and all the other different uh, platforms that lawmakers are on, not only to communicate with each other, but to communicate with their constituents yes. and vice versa, have their constituents can, uh, communicate with them. We have our advocates uh, engaged in that using um, uh, uh, earned media like uh, letters to the editor, 
doing radio interviews like this, really getting the word out there, not only their own stories, but really the story of Alzheimer's and what has to be done uh, in terms of public policy uh, to, to change the tide, uh, to change the arc of where we're going right now in, in numbers of Alzheimer's, uh, and, and uh, you know, really sort of press forward with, with lawmakers to make sure, ensure that they know uh, that this has got to be a national priority. Absolutely. And you remind me of a time that I had Ellen Phipps, uh, who you know, as a radio guest, and I asked asked a former congressman, who I happen to like personally a great deal, if he would come on and join us, or actually it was Ellen who joined us in the third segment of the show, and she had a great question for him. He knew it was coming, and and the question basically was, what can he in Congress and you know do to help uh, help Alzheimer's uh, disease and those advocates who are fighting to end it, um, you know, help us. His response, and this goes to your the thinking about people, not stats. His response was. And all apologies to him. I, th- I think he's a nice guy. But his response was, well, you know, um, we didn't uh, take away anything from the last year's allocation, financial allocation, to Alzheimer's research. Well, life moves on, and so does inflation. Uh, so you, I don't, if you want to revisit that point in any way, please do. What do you think? Are you getting lawmakers to, to get it? And, you know, I think just specifically on um, the issue of research, lawmakers have really stepped up in recent years. Yes. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association and AIM have really led the way uh, to increase the research funding at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Uh, currently, Alzheimer's and, and dementia research is uh, $1.4 billion annually what is spent. Uh, but, Marcello, that is triple what it was just five years ago. Yes. Congress has really stepped up and, and begun to increase funding uh, for Alzheimer's and dementia research. In fact, in, in 2016, the association and, and AIM helped uh, secure a, a historic $400 million increase for Alzheimer's disease research. Uh, and right now, we are working with Congress on uh, this uh, previous year's budget, which we're, we're still uh, waiting for Congress to work out for an additional $414 million increase. So we've seen a, a rapid increase in funding uh, for research. Uh, we're very hopeful of what that is going uh, to lead uh, to. But we also focus on uh, on support services as well. And so uh, just in recent years, uh, we AIM and the association uh, have worked with Congress to pass, um, at the time, a few years ago, landmark legislation uh, which was the National Alzheimer's Project Act. Yes. Uh, and that mandated the creation of a national plan to fight Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it coordinates our efforts across the government uh, towards a goal of preventing and effectively treating this disease by 2025. So, and what we also are, are uh, focused on um, health care services for those who are impacted by Alzheimer's right now. Uh, this just past year, we worked with um, the CMS centers for Medicaid and Medi- Medicare and Medicaid services to ensure that people living with Alzheimer's will have access to care planning after a diagnosis, uh, and they have access to that through a medical uh, professional with, uh, through Medicare. So that is, you know, incremental steps that we're taking uh, on both the research side, but also what's so important, the care and uh, support side for those that are impacted by Alzheimer's right now. 
You know, I'm so glad, uh, and and many of those facts I've heard, not all of them, some of them are quite new to me, and, and it's wonderful, but I can tell you almost everything you said to me about this funding and cooperation and, you know, uh, the professional uh, health care for, for, through Medicare, these things did not exist uh, when I when I discovered my parents uh, were going through this. I mean, I, I knew what Alzheimer's was. I just had no idea how they got it and what we were going to do. Uh, so, so wow. So obviously the Alzheimer's Association and AIM in particular are doing are having quite a, a major positive impact on how we see things because denial seems to be uh, our biggest enemy. That and always needing research, of course. What do you think of the general public now, not just the policymakers and the people we elect, but is the general public waking up to this? How about people under 40? Are they responding now? I think so, and I think you've seen just in the last decade, especially in the last maybe five or six years, attitudes around Alzheimer's have really changed. Um, I think we still have some ways to go, but the stigma around Alzheimer's disease mm. uh, in our society has started to dissipate. You're starting to see people share their diagnosis publicly. Um, you're starting to see uh, people in the public eye yes. share their diagnosis or diagnosis with, with someone within their family. Um, and so all of that creates this atmosphere. Uh, but at the same time, I think organizations like uh, the Association and AIM are really driving concern and awareness uh, across the country. Uh, but again, this isn't just a, uh, a, a national epidemic. It is a global epidemic. Yes. Um, and so, so not just here in the United States, but with uh, you know, millions and millions of people, 47 million uh, people living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementias worldwide, I think this is something that, that the world is opening its eyes to and, and starting to recognize that we have to do something about the future of this to invest in, in research, but we also have to do something within our own healthcare system uh, to continue to provide care and support for people living with disease. You know, John, I can't. Uh, you, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation. It is so enlightening, and I'm beginning to feel, no matter how much you think you know about Alzheimer's, the more we talk with people like you and the people at AIM and the Alzheimer's Association, the more we see we need to learn and we need to be aware of uh, as regular citizens who may not ever be touched by Alzheimer's, but certainly as caregivers, as I was, who are dealing with uh, family and friends, um, it's um, it's a challenge, and you and all of the training you're providing, and and the idea of how to uh, teaching people how to tell their personal story in a way that has a positive impact on policymakers. This is terrific. How do you um, do you connect uh, um, advocates and caregivers and uh, people who are becoming aware as as more and more numbers come toward you, certainly with more questions than anything else, I would think. Do you sort of hold seminars and bring them together so they learn from each other? We do. We, we make sure at the association and, and, and through AIM that anyone that the Alzheimer's Association uh, comes in contact with has the opportunity to list their voice, has the opportunity to become an advocate, to connect with lawmakers, policymakers at every level. And so in all 50 states, the Alzheimer's Association, working through AIM, um, has 
State Advocacy Days. We do it there in, in Virginia and Richmond. We do it all over uh, the country. We also have a uh, our largest advocate event uh, in the country uh, happens every spring. This year we're doing it a little bit later uh, in June in Washington, D.C., and it's called our Advocacy Forum. Last year we had uh, 1,300 advocates come to Washington, D.C. to meet with every single member of Congress. We had we had advocates from all 50 states uh, in Washington sharing their story and, and making a policy request. So it, asking for more funding uh, for Alzheimer's research, asking for uh, important legislation that will impact uh, caregivers and, and, and people living with the disease. And so we have training uh, ahead of each one of those um, uh, events, but we also do it throughout the year. We have a brass tops program, as, as you mentioned. Yes. Uh, I, I, John, I am going to interrupt you this time because I want to start off the next segment with grass tops and tell us all about it. So we're oh, going to take right. a short break Super. right now. Uh, we are talking with or listening to, which is even more important, John Funderburk, and he is the senior field director for the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, AIM, AIM. We're going to be right back and we're going to start out with grass tops. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There is nothing wrong with me. He was funny before he developed dementia, and he was funny after. Denial is not the solution. Alzheimer's is not going to go away. More than 5 million families are dealing with Alzheimer's or a related dementia, and that is more like 20 million people, because for each individual with a diagnosis, there is at least three primary caregivers who are trying to take care of them and give them the support and the love they need. Right here in Central Virginia, though, that number is close to 150,000 of our own friends and neighbors. We do all kinds of activities in the community, and we do those with the staff and the volunteers of those organizations having been trained. We pay attention to enjoying the opportunity of a community event and being out in the public. Our vision, of course, is a world without Alzheimer's. Support, please, the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you. Please call 1-800-272-3900. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today, John Funderburk. He is the Senior Field Director for the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, AIM, AIM, and its Connected Political Action Committee, AIM-PAC. Well, we, we've been talking about a great deal. We've been all over the place with this, but all of it's been impactful, all of it's been educational, and all of it's been necessary. But I am curious, as I said before I gave John a chance to speak the beginning of the last segment, what is grass tops? Sure. <laughs> so grass tops are uh, individuals, grass top advocates, who uh, develop a, a key relationship with their elected leaders. Mm. It could be state lawmakers, could be members of Congress, could be could be local, municipal, mayors, things like that. And, and they uh, develop a relationship on a specific issue and have an ongoing conversation with their their lawmakers. And, and at the Alzheimer's Association in AIM, we have a program called the Alzheimer's Association Ambassadors yes. uh, Program. Uh, it is a, a grass tops program where uh, we, uh, one advocate is assigned to their own member of Congress. Uh, 
Uh, and this individual, a lot of organizations have uh, programs like this, but, but those organizations might start with an individual who is a campaign donor or has a prior personal relationship with a member of Congress. We actually don't start there. We start with a passionate advocate, someone who raises their hand and says, you know, I'd like to do more. I'd really like to lift my voice, share my story with my member of Congress uh, and try and do more for Alzheimer's public policy. And so we work with these ambassadors 12 months out of the year. We do monthly trainings with them. Uh, they actually manage the teams of volunteers in their local congressional districts and in their states uh, and are really the, the, the voice of hundreds, if not thousands, of families who are living with Alzheimer's in those congressional districts. Mm. Uh, they work a lot on uh, not only sharing their own story, and we talked about training earlier, but also helping other advocates get more involved, that uh, share their stories, and um, again, making members of Congress understand that this is going to be, needs to be, uh, this issue needs to be a national priority, uh, if we need to have a bipartisan approach to it. And so uh, our ambassadors are um, everyday people. They are Republicans, Democrats, they are uh, caregivers, they are community leaders, uh, they are individuals who are passionate about this issue, who want to see change happen when it comes to Alzheimer's policy, and are dedicated to making that happen. Uh, they usually uh, uh, sign up for at least a year in our ambassador program, uh, but most stay well beyond that year uh, and really are leading the efforts. Uh, that all the public policy victories that the Alzheimer's Association and AIM have had in the last seven years uh, have been because of uh, the hard work uh, of our ambassadors and, and all of our grass tops. And you, and you said, I just want to emphasize this, they kind of commit to a renewable one-year term. Is that, is that true? That's correct. Yes. That's correct. We, um, we, we hold monthly briefings and trainings for them. Uh, we ask them to do different tactics that every month. And it might be write a letter to the editor. It might be, you know, go to your own community organizing uh, events and talk about this issue. Talk about Alzheimer's and why you're involved as an advocate. It might be going to a member of Congress's district office and meeting with that member or their key local staff. Um, but again, having an ongoing relationship so that we're not just showing up at, you know, once or twice a year and asking for something and disappearing, but we're there. We're in the community. We are a big part of uh, the, the bridge, these advocates are a big part of the bridge between the association of AIM uh, and lawmakers. Uh, we started a very similar program at the state level called our State Champion. Again, where advocates are connecting with their own state lawmakers to make sure they know that this is an important issue to their constituents. It's important in towns and communities all across the country, uh, and we're going to continue to work hand-in-hand with lawmakers on good public policy. You know, and, and as you said earlier, John, it puts a, f- a face on it. it uh, when, when there's a human being talking to a human being, I don't think I'm being naive about this. I believe that regardless of one's politics, for the most part, uh, if you can get them on uh, face-to-face chat, that becomes a different thing. And I will throw in something I actually experienced with Congress. Uh, I was part of an advocacy 
uh, for um, a few other issues from time to time and going walking the halls of Congress and meeting with them. And I had a sitting senator, who's still there, by the way, say to me, Marcello, if you want this to work, you got to tell everybody, uh, sending us an, uh, an automatic um, email, you know, that people say sign this petition and then send it off to your congressman. He says that's that's not nearly as um, uh, doesn't nearly have as much of an impact as when a single person sits across from um, their top aide and tells them why they want to see the congressman or congresswoman. And he said one for every every constituent who communicates face to face is worth a thousand votes to them. I mean, he brought it down to that. That's what it was about, getting reelected. Yeah. But the point is, he was making it clear, if you really want our attention, you got to get out there. And that isn't to say all the things, because you, you approach this clearly on all levels. You've got to. Uh, but uh, but that um, the ambassadors and the champions, that sounds like exactly what he was saying Congress needs. So there you are. You're doing it. Yeah, that is, thank you. That, that is true. And, and one thing I just wanted to point out that uh, something that we really focus on with our ambassadors and really with all of our advocates, that, that all of this work does not have to be done only in the halls of Congress in mm. Washington, D.C. Mm. The yeah. vast majority happens uh, in local communities. Yes. Uh, working with district staff, working with state staff. Uh, and, you know, you talked earlier about uh, advocacy. And we're seeing so much uh, uh, more dialogue, discussion about Alzheimer's disease. What we're seeing, and our ambassadors and advocates are seeing, are so many members of Congress, so many of many of their staff yes. who have been impacted by Alzheimer's disease. They have a personal story to tell themselves. Yes. And so that really helps with our relationship building and really driving home uh, the policy ask that, that we work with uh, with these lawmakers. Fantastic. And you're right. Everything like politics is local. So is fixing the the, the politics and the uh, the denial is also local. It's important. City councils, uh, I know a number of people who are dealing with Alzheimer's in their family in the General Assembly in Richmond, Virginia. So you you have absolutely nailed it. And uh, I, I just I can't say too much good about that, John. And, and thank you, I guess, is the big thing. What is happening, uh, particularly in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I'm thinking at the moment, with the, uh, of course, the most recent election probably has is beginning to change this, but with the, uh, uh, the sort of difficulty recognizing the importance of Medicare and Medicaid uh, expansion, um, and, and you say, and, and I think you're right, that we're beginning to remove the stigma connected with Alzheimer's, but there still is a stigma in the general public for mental illness and mental health in general. Is what you are doing sort of spearheading a change in attitude about mental illness and mental health care in general? Because uh, I get that impression from what I'm hearing. Do you see evidence of, of residual positive effect? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that you know, one of the, the uh, facts that our advocates are armed with uh, when they when they talk to lawmakers is that Alzheimer's is the most expensive disease in America. Um, it is. It cost our country just last year two hundred fifty nine billion dollars 
with $175 billion of that in Medicare and Medicaid payments. Mm. But when we talk to lawmakers at the federal level or state level about that, they understand that the cost alone uh, should be driving good public policy or better policy uh, around this. Uh, coupled with uh, just looking at the death rate, 89 uh, death rates from Alzheimer's have increased 89% in 2000, uh, 2014, while we've seen uh, death rates from other chronic diseases like heart disease, breast and prostate cancer, and AIDS. They've all declined. Mm. So when you see all these facts uh, uh, and figures, these numbers um, that are, are, are really alarming, um, I think there's all those signs of the island, regardless of their ideology, their politics, understand that this is a crisis. And this is something that we have to deal with, that our systems, uh, healthcare systems and Medicare and Medicaid cannot sustain uh, the path that we're on uh, with the, the number of Americans impacted by this disease. There are uh, 5.3 million Americans uh, over the age of 65 living with Alzheimer's yes. uh, today, and that's expected to grow to nearly 14 million by mid-century. So that, there's an understanding that something has to be done. Uh, about this issue. I think we are really driving uh, not only the, the conversation on Alzheimer's dementia, but other mental illness issues as well, as you, as you mentioned. Well, I believe that. There are two dates in the 21st century. Tell us uh, the kind of like bookends, sort of. what What is it we want and expect to have by 2025, and what is it we expect to have, whether we want it or not, by 2050? Uh, on the National Alzheimer's Plan, um, we are, uh, our goal is to have a path to uh, prevention or treatment uh, by 2025. Now, that's only a few years away. Mm. I'm very optimistic given the increase in research funding that's been happening, given a lot of things that are, that are happening in a very positive way uh, with uh, uh, research in the private sector as well as not only in the United States, but, but globally. I'm very optimistic uh, about that. What we have to do by mid-century is not only find that, that treatment, that the prevention and ultimately cure, but we also have to uh, deal with the millions of Americans who are living with Alzheimer's now. And that is really, as I said earlier, driving costs, uh, especially through Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and so we know that if we can find a prevention, find a treatment, we will save billions of dollars uh, down the line uh, in terms of Medicare and Medicaid payments, uh, rehospitalization, all the issues that come with uh, treatment, uh, treating someone living with Alzheimer's disease. We've got a growing uh, society, an aging society. Uh, you know, some say the silver tsunami that's coming at us with all the baby boomers who are uh, passing 65 now, we can increase uh, in, in Alzheimer's diagnosis. And so we're going to have to deal with that. Our healthcare systems are going to have to deal with that over the coming 20 and 30 years so that we're not paying you know, nearly one tr- over $1 trillion a year uh, in uh, expenses around Alzheimer's disease by that century. And, you know, and it's a point that bears really drilling down on, John, if I may, the the uh, people you know i know i get it. You, it it was frightening for me okay and i was looking at it not experiencing it as a person as a patient but certainly as a caregiver 
Uh, it is frightening, but you can't run from it. You can't deny it. It's very possible because aging is the leading cause for Alzheimer's. Yes, is that the correct statement? Yeah, that's, yes, it is. Uh, it's not normal aging, but aging is the, the most determining factor. Exactly. So, you know, um, it's it's accepting the fact that we need to do something because, as you say, people are living longer. And if more people live longer, then in all probability there will be more families dealing with Alzheimer's. It is not a solo disease. A whole family is involved. Uh, and uh, so what you're telling us, yes, we need to think ahead here. And if it has to be put in dollars and cents to make it happen, well, then that's how we have to talk to people. I'm only going to jump in and ask you repeat a few things because Alzheimer's, I believe you said, was the disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. Did you say that? That's correct. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, and it's the only cause of death in the top ten causes. It does not have a way to prevent, cure, or slow its progression. Okay. Thank you. And... Another thing, I don't think we've discussed the impact on the health of the caregiver. Can you touch on that a bit? I know there's statistics, but how do you, uh, you know, at AIM and Alzheimer's Association, help the caregiver? Well, we work a lot uh, at the local level, the state level, on issues like respite. So providing resources and capacity for caregivers um, to, to have time for themselves, their own health is so critical. As you know, caregiving responsibilities are just enormous uh, for, for anyone. Um, and so ensuring that they have time, to caregivers have time for themselves to focus on their own health uh, is critical. But also, you know, there's so much um, when it comes to, uh, again, the cost around this disease. Uh, you know, I, I cited earlier there are over 5 million Americans who are living with Alzheimer's disease who are over 65. Well, there are 15 million family members and friends who yes. are providing uh, care for those individuals living with Alzheimer's disease. Yes. Um, and and that, that adds up, all that care adds up to about uh, a little over 18 billion hours of unpaid care for those with Alzheimer's dementia. And so that, that economic value alone it's around $230 billion. So you think about your own situation and think about all the things that you were not able to do mm. uh, in your community, uh, in your own life, because you were a caregiver. When you think about that, happens, that's happening millions of times every day around the United States. Uh, and that really adds up and is truly having, a, a, again, a huge economic impact, not only on our healthcare system, uh, for for the, the the care and the, their own health care of the caregivers, uh, but also for for our economy, for our country. Are you saying because you know a number of guests, including Sue Friedman, have mentioned this statistic to me before on air, but I think somehow hearing it from you, <laughs> maybe it's repetition. But uh, I I think you've just made me think something, so I'm going to ask you about it. Is 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 that that little ripple you're talking about? This two hundred thirty billion dollars, and then you put it on me about the things I was unable to do. I did leave a relatively lucrative directing career in and soap opera career in New York City because I needed to come back and take care of my parents. Foolish me, I thought you know I'm a director. I'll just set this up. It was indeed the most important production I ever directed, but it wasn't something I could just 
tell the actors what to do, and they did it. So back to the $230 billion. Is your point that the economy, the society, is losing the benefits that if if Alzheimer's didn't exist or if it could be treated better, the caregivers would be out contributing in society? I hope you understand that question. It's a little confused I, for me. Yeah, I, I do, and I do believe that. I, I think that, again, you, you have family members and friends who are providing a tremendous amount of care at different stages of the disease for their loved ones, of course, too. Mm. Uh, many of whom, of course, want to keep their family members in the home, uh, keep them within their, their family unit. Uh, and that is a huge stress, not only just on the caregiver, but as you mentioned earlier, on a, a, a wide number of family members and friends within yeah. their own university, within their own networks. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that um, individuals who are, are spending hours and hours a day a day doing caregiving are not out, uh, as you, in your case, uh, working uh, the, in their job, or they're having to take time off, or in some cases having to, to quit their job to care for a loved one full time. And again, you multiply that in, in, in times of, of millions of, of Americans, and that's going to have a real impact on our economy, uh, not only down the line, but, but immediately. John, I've got to tell you, and, and again, my hat off to Sue Friedman and Ellen Phipps and all the folks who've talked to me about this, Maybe I just needed to hear it another time, but you really have opened my eyes to a piece of this puzzle, this challenge, that I just hadn't seen that way, and that's an important, important piece. Uh, just in case we need to, I'd like to go back just one more time, and and uh, from 2000 to 2014, the U.S. deaths from Alzheimer's increased by 89%, and how does that compare with other diseases? Chronic diseases? Well, in other chronic diseases, what we've seen during that, that time period is uh, death rates decline uh, for various types of cancer, for HIV AIDS. Um, and Marcello, that's because we fundamentally have been investing uh, in research. Uh, our government, the National Institute of Health, over the last 15, 20 years have been investing in research in those conditions. We're started, we started to see treatments, we started to see uh, uh, drugs and prevention uh, programs, and because of that, death rates have declined. We have not had that in Alzheimer's yet, and I'm very optimistic, though, that the increases in funding that we're seeing, uh, that the, the sort of change of mind that you're seeing uh, in, at, at every level uh, of policymakers, I think is gonna lead to incredibly positive things uh, and down the line, we're going to be able to uh, to reach that goal of preventing and, and treating Alzheimer's by 2025. Excellent. And that's a great optimistic point at which we probably need to stop. Now, John Thunderberg, I'm also optimistic if, if because of this conversation with you, John, but also I, I directed a few videos for the Alzheimer's Association, and in one of them, Dr. Bloom, uh, who's doing a great deal of research, I'm sure you know him, and his one of his things he said when I asked a question uh, about uh, when do you think? I mean, everyone wants to know when are we going to catch up with this and surpass it? And he said, oh, I'm optimistic that within the lifetime of everyone in this room. And I'll tell you, it hit me because I was in the room uh, and probably the oldest one in the room. So uh, we're all very optimistic, certainly when 
uh, people like um, John Funderburk at the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, AIM, and all the people and advocates who are working with the Alzheimer's Association and with people like John Funderburk. John, thank you so very much for being on the show. Obviously, you know I wish you all the best. And please, um, anything new develop, let's talk again, okay? Will do. That sounds great. Thanks for having me on, Marcello. Thank you. It's been, it's been wonderful. Bye now. Bye. And I can't remember where I live. And she should have been able to enjoy her grandchildren. There were a lot of them that had come along. They're not touched yet, but they more than likely will be. The Alzheimer's Association has worked tirelessly to raise awareness about this disease because we also know that families that access resources like the association have better outcomes overall. And so the Alzheimer's Association has done a tremendous job um, filling the gaps for us and helping us become better providers, better caregivers for our residents. Just do what you want to do, honey. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's okay if you take off your clothes. We're getting ready to go out and you take off your clothes and now you come back with pajamas on. It's okay. And that really helped me a lot. I certainly hope and expect that within the lifetime of everybody in this room, uh, that we will be able to do a lot more for Alzheimer's disease than we're currently able to do. Support, please, the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you. Please call 1-800-272-3900. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. Thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. The language of denial. Alzheimer's. Climate. Trump. And the bomb. Wondering in the shadow of the past, wondering if our Hancock sun is rising or setting, misses the point. Like a total eclipse, the blinding beauty of nature's power is in the eye of those who've learned to behold, whereas denial leaves us defenseless against time and ignorant of evolution. Few of us recognize a life-changing event until it consumes us. For some, it was the exceptional ideals of a we-the-people constitution. For others, a head-on collision playing football or texting while driving. Life changes as unexpectedly as a Gettysburg Address or Ferguson shooting. For some, the rise and fall of stock prices or cash machines investing in voting machines, transforming a Voters' Rights Act Main Street dream into Dreamers Go Home. Institutions don't lie, but often the people who run them do. Post-World War II financial, political, and religious institutions used communications and educational institutions to convince otherwise intelligent adults that atomic power would bomb war into a deep freeze. But the missiles of October 1962 proved denial precedes meltdown. Listening to Nikki Haley read to the United Nations Security Council was like streaming reruns of decades of American students being assured duck and cover would save their lives from the atomic bomb, that they could be educated reading texts that all but excluded female heroes, role models of color, contributions from hyphenated Americans, and tossing truth of Thanksgiving and Native Americans into a spiraling white squall. 
Shall we continue the self-delusion that dilutes world peace or embrace the heroics of sincere dialogue? Listening graces brain power with the potential to overcome nuclear power. Renewing our foundations in unconditional goodwill enables equal opportunity and injects denial with the pre-existing condition of truth. Our national security is inevitably intertwined with earth and all life upon it. So, first, do no harm. Speak truth about the power of our leaders and ourselves. Emulate those who believe character is the real measure of success and freely give to others what we ourselves wish to receive. Not only are we the change we've been waiting for, but we are the climate change we fear, the atomic bombs we've dropped and forgot, and those in need of affordable mental and physical health care we ignore. Any effort to take back, go back, or hold back incites our unwinnable war with destiny. Because with or without our permission, time moves ever forward, leaving in its wake with every breath we take an invitation to surpass the past by achieving what's next. Nonetheless, regardless which path we choose, we'll attract friends, create enemies, periodically encounter sustainable leaps forward, and alternatively battle addictive life-changing denials. Opioids and alcohol, terror cells and smartphones, iPods, iPads, social media, television, D.C. Wall Street cokeheads, constantly challenging our electing principle over greed. Much of life is a casting call, bully or bullied, caregivers or not my problem, but choosing progression over evolving into the company, habits, and precedents we keep shatters the denial of malice aforethought. Language is used for both truth and falsehood, by heroes and deceivers. Being human is the life-changing responsibility to learn the difference. No child left behind, or global warming. Political neophyte, or morally bankrupt self-serving bigot. Gas pipelines and offshore oil drilling, or solar panels. Trump Towers laundering money, or Wind Towers recycling air. When we can, in an embryo, replace the bad gene of one parent with a good gene from the other parent, can't we also prioritize finding a cure for Alzheimer's? For what will it profit humankind if we gain cures for cancers, heart disease, and strokes, but lose our memory of the choice between war and peace? Both silence and violence are welcome mats over which narcissists enter as existential threats, magnetizing voter fears to the denial of demagogues among us. Language, poetry or prose, oral tribal history or constitutional parchment communicates and inspires, but only we can determine direction, interpretation, or cause and effect. So, shall we be gerrymandered people, easily distracted by a misanthrope? Or seize the day, cease Sinclair local news takeover, and be indivisible before we're not here anymore? Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices. 
heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.